Welcome to the Mr. TV Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking with David Ichiaka, one of the creators of Bump in the Night. We talk about the art of stop-motion animation, and some of his favorite memories from the show including a very special person he met. So sit back and enjoy the show. David Ichioka, uh, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Could you tell our TV audience who you are and what your relationship is to Bump in the Night? Uh, I'm a co-creator of Bump in the Night and um, producer and director as well. And how did the idea for the show come about? Where did Bump in the Night come from? Well, Ken Pondek and I, who I'm sure you'll talk to later, um, had been working at Gumby in the 80s. Mm-hmm doing the second Gumby series, which was being done for Lorimar. And um, we got through that experience and it was a great experience, but we wanted to make our own show. So we went through a variety of different starts, finishes and false starts, did a TV pilot. And, um, but years later we kept trying and we came up with uh, Bump in the Night. That's that was its impetus is that we wanted to just make our own show instead of doing someone else's show. Um, as far as where the actual idea of a the monster who lives under the bed came from, I think it's just something that had been rattling around our brains for a long mm-hmm. time. Um, and we thought it could be fun. While we were producing the show, ABC thought that a great way to promote the show ahead of it coming out was to make those interstitials and show them first. It was we knew that it was going to be a show before we ever did those interstitials. Mm-hmm. And uh, curious about your relationship with Ken Pontak. How did you meet him, and how did you start working with him? I guess on the Gumby show, as you mentioned, right? No, I met him um, walking to school in second grade uh, in oh. uh, California. We've known each other our our whole lives, pretty much. So, um, and we were the nerdy kids who would, you know, every weekend and every afternoon and draw comic books instead of play sports or whatever. And, you know, so we always sort of grew up doing that sort of stuff together. And we just kept doing things together at, and uh, worked together on all that. So why did you decide to go with you know, stop motion animation for the show? Um, Well, we had just finished doing Gumby and we were kind of like the guys who did stop motion animation. So we thought that it would be a a kind of a way in to do something a little bit different. And it's also basically what we knew best and what we thought we always imagined the show being, you know, stop motion. And also because we had just finished Gumby, you know, when you're when you're pitching a show or doing any kind of a project, you you want one thing. You know, you want to be able to show something that's different and special. And at that time, there was no Robot Chicken or anything like that, and we mm-hmm. would have been the only stop motion series. Um, so it was like an interesting way to get a new technique out there and for us to sell the show. Um, plus, we just really loved the process of doing it. I think that's why people do stop motion is they just love doing stop motion. And did you guys face any sort of challenges going that route instead of doing something like, um, I don't know, something that was 3D animated instead? Well, I mean, yeah, 
because we kind of had to make it up as we went along besides the experience that we had on Gumby. There wasn't like a well-trod pipeline uh, for making stop motion animation. And unlike all the other animation that was happening um, on television, then we couldn't just send it out to Korea or wherever to get the animation done. We had to set up a whole studio ourselves, which was great fun. I, I don't know how much a challenge it was. It was, you know, everything is always challenging, but that's what makes it enjoyable. I guess one thing too is if you could um, just from you know that that time, could you sort of walk me through a little bit visually what that studio sort of looked like? Oh, it was a big empty warehouse, and then we would set up um, a machine shop and wood shop, paint shop. So it was lots and lots of physical stuff being built, and then um, there was a stage that was you know maybe had fourteen uh, or I'm sorry like twenty foot ceilings just a giant empty sounds, let's look like the sound stage that you would shoot live mm. action on. And we broke that up into individual um, shooting stages, miniature shooting stages that we had people standing around tables with miniature sets on them. Um, the only difference was on Bump in the Night, many of our miniature sets were actually, since it happens in the real world, it doesn't happen with little tiny miniature things for the most part. Yeah. Um, if we would have, we had like a whole boy's bedroom, you know, with full size bed. I mean, it wasn't a real bed. It was just, you know, it was a bed that was purpose made to do stop motion with, mm -hmm. but yeah. We, so you would go into one, you know, stage and, you know, elevated four feet off the floor on a table was a bedroom, you know, because you, you don't work on the floor. People have to stand up and animate those puppets. So, um, you know, everything was four feet off the ground. Speaking of the puppets that were used in the show is how big was the actual puppet? Like what did Mr. Bumpy, how did he actually exist? Uh, Mr. Bumpy was hard to measure because of his eye stalks. So you would have to say from the, from if you were to remove his eye stalks and have him standing on the ground, Mr. Bumpy was about eight inches, nine inches tall. So he was pretty small. I mean, Squishy was maybe about nine or nine inches tall. Mm -hmm. um, so he, and they were made out of polyurethane foam um, and they had ball and socket joints to them so they could work properly. And yeah, so switching gears a little bit and talking about the characters themselves, you know, where did Mr. Bumpy, you know, his design, his sort of attitude, where did that all come from? How did you come up with Mr. Bumpy? Well, I think Mr. Bumpy, more than anything, was Ken's um, design. I think it had been a character or, or characters like that that he'd been drawing a lot and then mix that in with years of us absorbing every R. Crumb comic book that had ever been done. And mm -hmm. A little bit of a cross between, um, you know, the old Pooperoo and Mr. Snoid and uh, Mr. Natural and then put it into a monster's body with the big bug eyes and you know you get you get a monster that is still fun and not a scary monster you know? mm -hmm. and uh one thing too is on the show you know you have all these people working in the background you have all these people you know making the sets and building the puppets but your show's main sculptor for a long time was norm de carlo um what was his role in the creation of mr bumpy and the various characters in the show Oh, well, Norm was with us for the entire time and, and before it started. And he, his role can't be 
minimized. I mean, mm-hmm. he he did not build the very first Mr. Bumpy physically. That was actually Josephine Lyon who did that, um, who built the Mr. Bumpy that we used to pitch and sell the show. Mm-hmm. But every other incarnation of Mr. Bumpy, the bump, Mr. Bumpy that was used for making the puppets were, was Norm. Um, and, you know, he he did a lot of character design for other characters in the show, um, including Destructo. And, but we also, we also had Jim Woodring who did a lot of characters. Um, he's a fine artist out of mm-hmm. uh, um, Seattle that did like the girl germ and, um, you know, several other of the supporting characters somebody like uh, Phil Silverfish uh, as well. But honestly, I don't remember the other ones that he did, but he did the logo, um, the Bump of the Night logo. It's all very, if you look at it, it's all very obviously done by Jim Wardring. It has very him, yeah. <laughs> squiggly, um, cross-hatchy style in the shading and that sort of thing. Um, so he had a lot of influence on the show as well. And, you know, we knew him from his comic books um, and other work that he'd done and just thought, you know, what an amazing, valuable resource. And he'd worked in animation before he became a fine artist. Um, but no, Norm was always there and, and was there to, you know, really, he, he was as much of a character designer as any of us, um, if not more on, on the main characters. And then he was the art director on the show for, you know, the entire time the show ran as well. Um, I mean, you know, Mr. Bumpy is a look. He's a monster. He's green. He's got like, you know, purple uh, warts on him. He, you know, he he has an attitude, but he also needed a voice. And I was wondering, you know, what was the auditioning process like trying to find the perfect voice for him? Well, I mean, as you know, Jim Cummings ended up doing his voice mm-hmm. and he was, you know, especially in the late 20th century, you know, the kind of premier voice actor and still is in many ways um, doing a lot of Disney voices, including Tigger and Winnie the Pooh and, and you know, so many, so many, it's too, it's impossible to list mm-hmm. um, how influential he's been. Um, and and the, the curious thing is that we worked with a dialogue director named Ginny McSwain, who's fantastic in her own right, was a big contributor to the show. And we said, we want to audition a lot of people that we never heard of. We don't want to just fall back on the same people that everybody else uses. Right. And we, we, here are, you know, where, and, and we very much had in mind, like, if we could have cast Tom Waits to do Mr. Bumpy, we would have, we wanted Tom <laughs> Waits, right? We wanted this sort of jazz sounding, yeah. um, you know, cigarette smoking raspy voice actor but the curious thing is we did a lot of we 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 cast so we mark hamill was was did an audition um bud court did an audition um you know and mark obviously has gone on to have a fabulous career in doing Mm -hmm. voice acting well in any case Ginny lined up all these different people to audition and we listened to them but we it was like a blind listen we just listened to the voices that we liked and of course, we ended up picking the two most influential and most used voices of that time, Rob Paulson and Jim Cummings, to, to play Squishy and Bumpy, respectively. 
Send one box top and receive this cool plastic turbo totronoid absolutely free. And if you're not satisfied, return for a full refund. Here's the box top! Here's the box top! Here's the box top! That means I get my own turbo totronoid for free! Um, they were just that good, you know? They just channeled those, act, those characters. Um, so, you know, as much as we, we really tried to get something that wasn't out of the box, we ended up right back with those two guys. Um, so, um, but it was a true, true pleasure and privilege working with all those actors, um, E.G. Daly, um, you know, Gail Mathias, and especially in the cases of Rob and Jim, you know, they really contributed to the how much of a musical aspect the show had to it because they were both so musical and it was wonderful having them sing, so. It's a perfect place to hear the music play. Karaoke. You can sing a song or dance a night away. Karaoke. Everything is okie dokie at the karaoke cafe. One more character that I want to talk about was one that kind of struck terror into the hearts of a lot of the watchers of the show, and that's the closet monster. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk about the inspiration behind that character. Oh, well, he is the berserker. I mean, he's like the unknown force of nature, bad guy that just everybody's afraid of. And it was a perfect element to have in the script that there's really a bad monster that you're scared of. And for the longest time, you never saw the closet monster. I mean, or you saw just a hand. Mm -hmm. um, or you just heard the closet monster or you saw the doors shaking on the closet. It wasn't until, I believe, well into the second season that you actually saw the whole closet monster. Um, but he was, um, you know, he was basically an upturned bag of upturned laundry basket. And, you know, the laundry had come to life and had become this monster. But he was truly huge. And I'm sure there's been bigger stop motion animation characters made since then but at that time he was probably the largest articulated stop-motion puppet that was ever built because he was i mean he was life-size mm -hmm. um laundry basket so you know from stem to stern the closet monster is probably four or five feet long <sighs> teeth teeth fields of toughers <sighs> that claw can it be? My worst fear come true? It's the closet monster here under my boy's bed. Come to chew my precious monster hide! Ah! Red alert! So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about production. Uh, so I'd read in the Encyclopedia of American Animated Television Shows by David Perlmutter um, that Bump of the Night was highly popular. It's one thing to sort of read that in an encyclopedia, but it's a different thing to sort of live that popularity. You know, what did that popularity look like to you? Well, to me, the popularity of the show simply translated into how many seasons we could do it for. Um, and the fact that we moved on to a second season and then we were going to move on to a third and fourth season, including doing a Christmas special, was as good a news as I could have ever hoped for at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's, I mean, it... it, it it certainly didn't turn into anything else that you think of as, as television popularity is. Right. Um, it, it's people still recognize the show, but 
you know, um, you know, mostly I, I run into people now that I work with that say, hey, I loved that show when I was, you know, five or something like that. But, um, you know, to me, that's really what popularity meant is we could keep on making it, which is all we really wanted to do. Mm hmm. Um, and, and one thing about, you know, that, you know, being able to keep on making it, um, Perlmutter went on in his entry to say Bump of the Night was sort of an unfortunate victim of a content purge that occurred when Disney took over ABC at the time. So, you know, what happened to the rest of those seasons? Um, well, there was um, the third season had been written and it had been recorded and um, all the storyboards had been done for it. We had just started doing actual production of the animation um so but it stopped and not a single show was actually finished the first episode was almost done but it mm -hmm. wasn't you know it never went through post-production um and you know not all the animation was done uh whatever the hap the rest of the seasons you know they're they're in a box in a somewhere at abc probably um, and everything else, a fourth season, that was, that's simply a glimmer in someone's eye that there was mm -hmm. never anything beyond the fourth season. But I know there's always been this um, rumor of the lost fourth, third season of Bump in the Night. But, you know, I, I could play you the animatics to that. I couldn't, but they could at ABC. Right. But, like, but the actual shows don't exist. There, there is no such thing. So, you know, I had read some of those rumors as well on um, MFLAT's website. Um, I guess the question is, what that third season is, is what was sort of the plan for the characters? How are things going to change? You know, were there new characters going to be introduced? Um, I'm sure there were. I don't remember a single one of them because it was, right. you know, 20 years ago or something. Yeah, more. about that. Um. You know, we I know that we built on our strengths and we brought back some of the characters that um, were beloved in the second and first seasons. Um, things like Germ Girl, we really made her into Squishy's uh, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a lot more music in the third season, too. And there there is actually like a, a album's worth of bump in the night music that mostly Ken wrote. Um, uh, right. Ken and I wrote that stuff. And I'd say he wrote most of those songs. But, you know, we did a rap back then. We did um, we did a, a, a um, country and Western uh, song mm -hmm. about, about um, Mr. Bumpy being jealous of Squishy's girlfriend. Uh, and we did, you know, there were it, there, every half hour episode had one musical piece in it, you know, plus a karaoke, which was the little short musical pieces that we had. So there was a lot more music in the third season than there was in the uh, in the second and first. And all of it stored in a box somewhere. I guess. I mean, it's like, who knows what, what they have at, at ABC and at Disney by extension. I just feel like I got to break in there somehow. Uh, yeah, I don't know why the show was canceled in the end. Um, it, but I, I do know that as soon as Disney bought ABC, um, they assured us that it, their Saturday morning lineup would not change and nothing was going to change. Mm -hmm. And then two months later, the entire Saturday morning lineup changed 
remain and and the only thing that remained were disney originated shows so i mean it's pretty clear that we were small potatoes they had bigger plans um and you know you can't be bitter about that kind of stuff you just have to move on um and something i want to talk about too uh, that i found kind of notable about bump of the night and, and maybe this has to do with you know the third and fourth seasons being canceled and the longevity of the show is that um Bump in the Night never really had a video game, as far as I could tell, in, in terms of the research that I'd done. Was that idea ever floated to you? There actually was a Bump of the Night video game that we, that went, I don't know that it was ever finished, but we created assets for it. Um, I mean, what was that supposed to be like then? Oh, God, it was platformer, I think. I mean, th- to think about when that was and what the video game technology was like. Right. I mean, we were basically making, I mean, Ken and I did Clay Fighter, if you recall what Clay Fighter was back in those days. Meet Mr. Frosty, snowman with an attitude, Clay Fighter for life. Fists and feet fly as bad Mr. Frosty and his Clay Fighter friends smack it out in hilarious head-to-head combat in Interplay's one or two-player action game, Clay Fighter. So, um, it was the same sort of, you know, you build Mr. Bumpy's little sprites um and i think you know honestly video games that come from tv shows typically are pretty awful um and i'm I'm pretty sure ours was no exception it was probably just (laughs) as awful um it's it's, you're making kind of video games for the wrong reason and gameplay is not the be all and end all and reason that you're doing it so what you end up with is something that's half a video game and half a promotional piece for a television show um, but yeah, we did create it. Um, and, you know, Danger Productions, which was our studio, had a pretty long pedigree in doing mm-hmm. video games. And, you know, we ended up, we did Clay Fighter 1, and then we came back and did the assets for Clay Fighter 3, which was a horribly unfortunate um, from a technological standpoint, because those were actually quite beautiful, the animation that we did for that. Um, but it ended up on a platform that could never take advantage of it. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, it would have been fun to have, you know, we did all the bumpy run and walk and duck cycles and, and rest positions and, and you know, all that sort of those simple assets back then before the games were quite as uh, incredibly cool and, and giant world as they are now. I mean, right. I was just playing Animal Crossing and it's like that that simple game is like puts what the technology that we were using like so in the rear view mirror it's incredible mm. um and one final thing i want to talk to you about was the uh bump the night christmas special uh twas the night before bumpy uh which was 90 mm. minutes in length uh which is quite a achievement uh i mean that's you know 90 minutes of show that's 90 minutes of animation um why did you want to go so big with a christmas special hey why not right <laughs> i mean we we tried to do as much as we possibly could i remember when we started that, we we had all these incredible set pieces and giant sets and, you know, huge life-size snowmen and statues. Mm-hmm. And I remember going, how in the world are we going to do this? You know, it's like so huge. This is so much bigger than what we would normally do. And the people that were working on the show were like, we can pull it off. Let's do it. So we did. Oh, joy and 
most comforting holiday of the year. This ain't nothing in the world where you get the most loot. Bumpy. Um, you know, I think that they saw it as an opportunity at ABC to, to really make a splash. And, you know, it was a lot of fun. Looking back on your memories of Bump in the Night and the production of it and casting and everything, you know, do you have any fond memories uh, that sort of stick out to you? Things that you will sort of always remember about your time working on it? Oh, God, there's so many. I mean, yeah. it was one of the greatest times of anybody's life. But one thing I'll never forget was stepping out into this stage in Brisbane, not Brisbane, Australia, Brisbane, California. Mm -hmm. Um, before we started with just Ken and me and I think Norm and maybe our friends and animators, Angie and Owen, and looking at a blueprint of the layout of the stage and standing in the middle of this stage and just feeling the potential of this thing that we were about to start, this thing we'd always wanted to do. And it's now happening, which seems so crazy, you know, from you know, working on somebody else's Gumby episodes. So like now we're setting up our own studio. Um, and, and that I will never ever forget standing there in the dark in that on that stage, planning on what the next few years of our lives were gonna be like. Um, and of course they were great. And among the things that happened is I met my wife who was the editor on that show and you know, I, she's in the other room right now. We've been married for 25 years. So, you know, that certainly stands out as a yeah. very important thing for me. Um, I, you know, I could, I could forget about all that other stuff easily. And if you take a look at what Mr. Bumpy puppets look like now, they're, mm -hmm. it, it's a, it's a wonderful poignant reminder of the passage of time. When you look at a stop motion puppet 25 years later, because their flesh is literally crumbling off of their bones yeah. and you have to keep them in a plastic bag because they stink so bad mm. from the breakdown of the chemicals that are inside of them. Um, but Hey, I, I, that's certainly not what happened with the rest of my life. Cause as you move on from that, you gain from the relationships then, and the artistic lessons that you learn in a place like that. And, you know, here I am in, not not 20 miles from where we shot bump in the night in marin county right now hmm. um with my wonderful wife of 25 years who i met on that show um you know ken pontek is down the road in sausalito you know five miles away and you know he's living with his also he was married during that show and you know still so many of the people that we've known from that and the relationships that have built from the relationships that we've made on that show have, have endured and have, you know, been a huge part of our lives. And, you know, as, as the memory of a show like that fades in the collective consciousness, every once in a while, somebody like you pops up and says, and reminds me that, you know, it isn't lost, you know, it's still, it's still there for some people to see and notice and care about. One thing I want to ask about too is um, particularly about uh, claymation um, and a lot of the uh, comments on YouTube and I know that people always say don't look at the YouTube comments um, some of the comments <laughs> on the YouTube videos that are out there say that you know shows like this aren't made anymore um, they find that claymation is a bit of a lost art 
And I know that there are films like um, the ones developed by Leica, you know, Kubo and the Two Strings, um, several other films like that. But as a whole, claymation on television has sort of disappeared. Um, I would beg to differ with you there. I don't don't mean to be argumentative. No, of course. But I think it's it's going stronger than it ever has. I mean, you have a show like Robot Chicken, um, which has been probably the most successful stop motion show ever on television. It's gone like ten seasons or something crazy. Um, you've got um, a lot of the stuff that Stupid Buddy Studios is doing. Um, I personally just. Um, produced um, a stop motion piece for um, Cosmos, the second season of the new Cosmos series. It was all being done in stop motion for television. Um, and you know, I, I have several friends and a whole new generation of stop motion people in Los Angeles, as well as Portland, that um, are just going great guns on making new films and new TV shows. Um, and I think, I mean, Amazon had a um, kids show called Tumbleweed that was beautiful. It was mm -hmm. done in Los Angeles. Uh, so I, I, I don't think so. I think that, 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 that stop motion is one of those art forms that refuses to die and, and it's against all of our thoughts that it would be replaced by, you know, what is basically simulated stop motion, which yeah. is computer animation. Um, and hey, I have nothing but respect for the people who do all those things too. I think it's fantastic. And you know, we just started using those computerized tools on Bump mm -hmm. um, early on when they were super, super crude. Um, so, so yeah, I think stop motion is still very much alive and kicking. Yeah. So I guess instead of my question being like, oh, so why isn't stop motion animation being used? I could also ask this. So, you know, why do you think stop motion animation is seeing a bit of a resurgence on TV then? That I have the faintest idea. <laughs> ever since, you know, the new techniques for 2D and 3D animation have come out, the only thing I can think of, um, there's I think there's two reasons why people still do stop motion. Um, one is that it does differentiate you. I mean, it's something different, right? And that's always a good thing. Um, and, but I think the most important reason is there are some people that just love it, you know, for what it is. And, and they love doing it. They love the physicality of it. They love, you know, being on a stage with lights and cameras. And, and it is different, very different from doing a 2D or a CG show as far as you know, those shows are done in offices. You know, stop motion is done on a stage um, and, and offices too. But, um, but it's, and one is not better than the other. And I wouldn't presume to judge them one way or another. I think mm -hmm. there are good examples of both kinds of productions. Um, but it is different. And it, it is, if you really love stop motion, you do have a hard time, I think, adjusting to doing something else. And I think, you know, that's the reason that Leica exists is because there are some people that just want to do stop motion, you know, and, and Travis Knight is one of those people that wants to keep doing stop motion and the occasional big live action picture. But, um, you know, they, he, he's somebody like Travis is a, a brilliant animator as well as being um, an executive and a director. 
And there's just something to it that that's more satisfying to some people than um, the computer equivalent. Well, I mean, there's there's certainly probably a, a, a bit of a more you know physicality to it. You have to set up lighting. You have to work on the soundstage. You have to actually physically move the characters that you created. So, I guess there's something tactile to it too for the creators. Well, right. I mean, and 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 some people assign a positive value to that, and some people don't. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there's all kinds of people. There's people uh, who are stop motion animators who moved on to become CG animators. And they go, great, I don't have to, you know, set up crazy rigs and I my back doesn't hurt at the end of every day because I've been lifting heavy things and I don't have to reach over things. And, and you know, the act of doing stop motion animation is rather physically taxing. Um, it, you know, you're stooping and reaching and crawling and climbing and, you know, it, it's if you really think about all the limitations that, that you have when you're doing it, it becomes very daunting, um, even with some of the better tools that are out there now. So some people hate that and would much rather be at a computer, but some people love it. And some people love the product of it and the fact that it is so imperfect, you know. Um, that's what happened with the Cosmos series is, and um, Druyan, who's the head of, of Cosmos and, and Walt and, uh, um, Carl Sagan's widow, who was very involved in the first Cosmos series, um, both of them, um, she couldn't see the story of Nikolai Vavilov as being done any other way than as with stop motion puppets. And there's something about the fact that it was a story about a Russian botanist in the 40s and 30s that, yeah, it kind of defied the idea of this sort of slick computerized presentation. And stop motion was a really good way to do it. Um, so that's what we did, you know, over at Starburns, um, same studio that did Anomalisa did that. Uh, just a side note, I, I remember watching Anomalisa and, you know, th- there were certain times where, I don't know, it, it had something to do with the uh, the face of David Thewlis's character where you could see the seam that was a constant and, reminder that you are watching stop-motion animation, like you're watching an armature whose mouth is being replaced. But there's something mm-hmm. just, I don't know, um, something to it. Je, je, je ne sais quoi. I don't know, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It. is. I don't know what it is is exactly mm-hmm. what it is. So um, it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's got a special quality to it. It's identifiable as what it is and, and the technique means something now. Now that now that it, it is no longer a craft and a means to an end, you know, it's it, it's no longer how you animate dinosaurs. Let's put it that way. Right. You know, there are better ways to animate dinosaurs. There are better ways to make things that look real than stop motion. And everybody thought that, that that's the end of stop motion. You know, we're not gonna there's way better tools. Ever since Mars attacks, there's just better tools, right? But no, it's just become more of an art form, you know, and in some ways become more valuable because of that. Yeah. And, and just finally, um, a little bit of a, a question about Mr. Bumpy, going back to him. Uh, you had mentioned before that Mr. Bumpy and the characters are kind of disintegrating in bags a little bit. Oh, you mean the actual puppets? Yeah, the actual puppets and, and stuff. So it's an interesting um, sort of 
visual metaphor, metaphor of, of sort of the, yeah. the, the, the longevity of the show and how long it's been since, you know, Bump the Night's been on TV itself. Um, I guess my question is, is that we've seen, you know, a return of so many different shows recently, whether it's through, you know, rebroadcasting or a revamp of the show, you know, Thundercats is back, She-Ra's back, Invader Zim is back, and so many different shows have sort of returned as a bit of a special. Um, do you think Bump in the Night will ever get the similar treatment? Here's my answer to that question. That would be nice. I would like to see that. As far as if, I have no idea. Those, that's somebody's decision way above my pay grade. Um, gotcha. But yeah, I have real affection for the show. I would love to go. I would love to do it again. Um, and would in a heartbeat. And believe me, we've tried. But um, but it, it it's never really been the right time, place, people, whatever. And of course, Ken and I don't own the property. The property is owned by Disney, which yeah. complicates things. There's a lot of people that contributed to it who are really important. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that you're talking to me and later you'll talk to Ken. But really the important thing to remember is we're kind of just the stand-ins for the whole group of people that all contributed to making what it is. And that's true of all works of television um, or movies. It's like, it is such an important group. And, you know, it was lovely to have a credit as a creator on a show, but I I would be um, negligent to not mention that I don't believe that Ken or I, or even the two of us together deserve that alone mm-hmm. you know, it was it was so many people that made it what it is and you know i have an eternal debt to every single one of those people and hopefully they and many of them have expressed to me, to me in the in the ongoing years what a great experience working on that show was i i hope it was fun for them and um, I, they've all moved on to you know doing some other great thing and learning from what they did there because so, you know that's it's just, you know, that's the special part of doing a TV show like that is, is the group of people you're working with. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, share with a friend over the social media airwaves and be sure to subscribe. And stay tuned for our next episode.